This morning, we're going to look at answering objections. I object. You know, I love that when, when you're watching those courtroom dramas and the old Perry Mason show, you know, and I object. And, and I find myself now, even with the new shows, I dated myself, but I, I, I look at some of the new shows and I'm like, objection. I find myself calling objection before they even say objection. And my wife says, shh. Because so, yeah, I'm already ahead, I'm already ahead of, of the TV show. It's so predictable. Um, but I object. Paul is actually doing the same thing. He's running ahead of his Jewish readers and, and he's calling out these objections that they might have. He's bringing forth, he can hear their objections and he answers them. One of the things that we realize when we look at judgment is, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, is that many times when we think about judgment, we think about judgment or justice from a human perspective and we don't relate and we don't think about the definition of God's judgment based on who God is. That's a really big dilemma, is as we often measure judgment according to our desires and our emotions. And a lot of times we struggle with God's judgment in our life, or we see God's judgment upon people. We struggle with it because of human element and that measurement of it. And so this morning, we see that being played out in our text. And there's some logical conclusions that Paul mentions from chapter 2 that go into chapter 3 when he answers the arguments. Um, you can imagine that Paul is constantly faced with arguments. Um, if you don't understand that, again, if you know Jewish culture, um, raising objections and logically arguing thing in a vicious circle is very Jewish. It's a very cultural thing. They love it. That's why they make great lawyers. It's probably why uh, God is using Paul to make this stand. And so that's what our uh, job is this morning. As we look through these series of questions and objections to God's judgment, we want to see how uh, it is answered from God's word and not just from our feelings. So if you're in Romans chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at verse 1 and 2 is the first objection. 3 and 4 is the second. And if you notice that every uh, odd verse is, or you know, the odd verse, not the even ones, is the objections. The even verses are the answers. And so uh, I like the way that God does this for us this morning. Paul, uh, he had Paul write it out. Very easy for us to see. And that is nice. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us in the reading of his word and help it, us to understand it this morning. Lord, we thank you for the text. We thank you that you care about how we view judgment. Lord, I pray that it would help us to open our eyes to how amazing the gospel and the work that you've done for us when you died on the cross and rose again and conquered death 
through your righteousness, that you became right for us because we have nothing that is good. We have no argument to stand on, but we have Christ. So Lord, help us uh, to see how important it is to understand the gospel and what you've done for us based on these arguments this morning as we finish up this section on your perfect and right judgment. And Lord, may we stand before you in great joy because of what Christ has done for us. So Lord, we thank you for your truth and that your word is truth, that the sum of your word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 3, notice the series of objections and answers. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? Because Paul has argued the fact that just because they're Jewish or just because they have the law or just because they have these rituals doesn't mean anything before God's judgment. So what advantage has the Jew? Or what, what is the value of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they are entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? May it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. But if your unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what then shall we say? Is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? I'm speaking in human terms. I like the way that's added there. I'm speaking very plainly on our human level here. Verse 5, but if your unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abandoned to, abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we have slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. That last one there is is quite the, the statement or objection. The Jews are the Jews are upset. They're saying, Well, man, I thought what we had was good. I thought our nation was great. I thought we were great. We're God's chosen people. We can kind of relate to that. We're, we're Christians. We, we have God's word. We have the church. We have the statutes that God has given us. We, we, I mean, for goodness sake, we're Baptists. We must be right. Some of you are like, what do you mean we're Baptists? <laughs> no, it's just the name on the side, right? And they're like, what, what's going on? We're, we're good. And Paul is like, we're all under judgment. As we think about these objections and we look at the answers to them, there's a message for us as well. 
and there's some implications. And so we want to look at the answering these common, common objections to God's judgment. I mean, because there are common. I've run into many of these objections as we have, as I've witnessed to people, as I've talked to people about God, I've, I've heard these exact same objections to God's judgment. And so it's good for us to look at them. In your notes, you'll notice that there's a Q and an A. That stands for question and answer. Um, you'll notice that the points are really kind of how it relates to us. A lot of the common objections that people have today. And so I've kind of, I've kind of put that, the, the cart before the horse. And so we'll look at the point and then we'll look at the question and how Paul answered it. Uh, to us this morning. Point number one, what advantage is going to church? I mean, why go to church? They're filled with a bunch of unruly, hypocritical, sinful people. Um, if, if God is going to, you know, if there's nothing righteous about going to church, and there's nothing, you know, if, if it doesn't make me right to read the Bible or pray, or if it doesn't make me right to, to sing songs and, and, and go sit and listen to a boring message, you know, what, what advantage is it? What advantage is going to church? I hear this all the time. I can just go do whatever I want. And, and those of us here, we've been really enjoying the family that God has been building. We've really been enjoying that. And we know that there's a great advantage to be a part of the body of Christ. But this is a common objection when, when people hear about God's judgment and that there's none good, no, not one. And the Jews had the same thing. What is the advantage to be a Jew? In verse 1, he says, you know, since being circumcised in chapter 2, we see in, you know, the last uh, message that, you know, being circumcised of no value, it's about inward in the heart. It's not about the outward. And knowing the law doesn't, you know, justify you. And teaching others about the law doesn't justify us. If, if, then what value is it being a Jew? I give up. Right? The Jews are, there's a sense that they're not very thrilled or happy or they're trying to tear Paul's message apart and not realizing and really thinking about who God is. You know, after all, they were God's chosen people. They were special to the Lord. They had this special relationship with the Lord. They even, God had a plan for them. He had promises for them. So how can they be guilty before the Lord? Never thought about that they're, they're, never, they're not completely perfect. In fact, but Paul answers them and says, there's great value in being a Jew. They carried along with them God's word. They carried the light of who God is and, and why this judgment is complete. And that they had this, Paul responded to them, reminded them that they had great blessings in every way. There's great value in being God's chosen people. But the greatest evidence is that they carried God's word. That's what oracle means. That's what Deuteronomy 4 was all about. They were such a great nation, but they, they focused on the great nation part. 
we're great, we're great, we're great, right? You can think of those cartoons. You know, I think of Dr. Seuss too. You know? But they're, they're focused on that. But that was, was that God's word was great, that God was great, that God was near them was great. What made them great was God. They were supposed to shine. It says that, that, it says that, that surely the great nation, that people would say, whoa, surely they are great. You know, you know what I'm talking about. When people see a great body, when they see Christians who love the Lord, and that even in the midst of great circumstances, and when they're persecuted, that they love the Lord, and they're like, man, these people, they're, they handle everything with great perseverance and they have great strength and they have great wisdom and wow, they're, they're amazing. Have you ever had people come up to you and say, wow, you, there's just something about you that's different than everybody else? And you're like, yeah, I'm a good person. Right? I'm a, I'm a great person. I can, I, can, uh, I can burn barbecue and, and, I can, <laughs> and pretend it's great and, and I can do all sorts of great stuff. Look how great I am. Or is it that, oh no, I have a great God. He's near me. He forgives me. He loves me. He sent his son. We have a, the word of God to become a great light. That's what he's saying here. Is, so imagine... I read this story about imagining that you're on this great big island that's surrounded by, you know, this great crevasse, and there's this one bridge to get across, but it's, it's utterly dark. You can't, you don't, have, you don't know where this, you're on this great island, and every, if you went too far, you're going to fall off, and, you're, and it's dark, and all you have is a pen light. This, you know, a pen light, if you're... Yeah, those little bitty lights, and you push it, and you can see just enough to take a step. Don't take too big of a step, though, because the cliff might be on the other side. But So you wander around, and, and you may never find the bridge across the Great Divide. But say God gave, this, gave a certain group of people on that island a floodlight that shows over a mile of light. That's a big, huge searchlight. You know those big old spotlights? Those million candle, like now they have like five million candle lights, the ones that burn, you know, when you, you know, kill you. <laughs> I don't know, they always have these great infomercials, right? Uh, we can start fires with it. And, but you know what I'm talking about. And it shows this big light. And what if that people, they, they, they could find, they could find and go mile, mile, mile and find. And they could find and they know the way to go because they have this light. But instead, they show the light. They use the light, this powerful light. They use it to find needles in a haystack. They go around and say, hey, I know that there's a needle in that haystack. I know that there's something good in there. Let's find it. And, and they use it to expose all the bad deeds in every person around them. Oh, you're not going the right way. You got to follow me. There's a needle over here. This is exactly what the Jews are guilty of. They argued so much about 
the law and how great they were because they had the law. They argued all the time about the law. In fact, do you know they had a law on the Sabbath about spitting? There was a spit law. That's what got Jesus in trouble in the New Testament. Did you know that if you spat on a rock, it was okay? You got to watch where you spit. Because if you spit on a rock, it's all right. But if you spit on the dirt, then you were making mud. That was work. You couldn't do that. So your spit might make mud. It's true. It's in the Talmud. And that's why they went after Jesus when he spit in the dirt, made mud, and put it on the blind man's eyes and said, be in, what a way to, be, to heal a guy. But think about it. The guy didn't care once he wiped the mud off and he could see, right? It didn't matter. Instead of using God's word to lead men out of darkness, they used this powerful tool that God gave them, God's word. They used it as a means to send men deeper into spiritual darkness. Drove them further away from God than actually getting closer to God. This is Paul's main point here as he answers this objection of what advantage is it? The Jews had great advantage in being able to see that they could not measure up to God's holiness. They knew that. They knew that God provided a way for them to be right, that they could never be right, and that God's way was right. God clearly testified to their guilty condition and that it pointed to God as the right way. They had it. If you want to see how clear it was to them, because they had God's word, let me give you a few testimonies. Testimonies, right, are what God does and what God thinks in the life of people. Let's look at Job, David, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, a broad spectrum of people. Job said this in Job chapter 9, verse 2, verse, and, and verse 20, but how can a man be in the right before God? What a question to ask. He's in the midst of being, you know, being persecuted by Satan and then persecuted by everyone around him <laughs> and in the midst of all his suffering. Look what he says in verse 20 when he answers this question. Though I am righteous, basically in a sense he's saying I'm a good man, my mouth will condemn me. As soon as he said I am right, he goes I'm condemned. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. Even though I am guiltless, God still sees me as guilty. Wow, can't be very much clearer than that. How about David? David in Psalm 53, verse 2 and 3 says, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Sounds like what we're going to see in Romans 3, 23. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one, repeat, there is no one who does good, not even one. Right? David knew that he wasn't perfect. He knew that God was holy. He knew that he needed to come before God and repent. Isaiah, Isaiah 53 Six, 
All of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord had caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The foreshadowing of Christ. Israel knew the Messiah was coming and that all the guilt would fall on the Messiah. They had, they had the word. Same in Isaiah 64, 4. He said, all our good deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. See, we judge, we measure up to ourselves. Well, I'm better, I'm good. Compared to who? Well, everybody else. But when we look at God, we realize his holiness would burn right through our goodness. Jeremiah said this, he said, um, said referring to his guilt in Jeremiah 17.9, he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? God does. He knows it. The word of God seals the guilt for every human being. No Jew will ever be able to stand before God and argue this point. For the scripture clearly establishes before the living God that all are guilty. The same is true for us. Going to church does not save us. Being, having Christian parents does not save us. Knowing, the God, knowing about the gospel doesn't save us. Turning to the Lord and confessing who we really are. I'm guilty, Lord. And calling upon him to save us. Coming to the second point is that why bother with taking any responsibility in life? I'm not, why even be responsible? Because here's the, the reality is, as they, they said in verse 3, they go back and he says, what then? If some did not believe, well, you know, not everybody believes. Some are sinning. Does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God. And if God is unfaithful, then why bother even trying to live right? Is that what you're saying, Paul? That's, they're, they're objecting. They're being very argumentative and sarcastic and sinful. But this is the idea. As, is, God's unfaithful, is God unfaithful and his promises invalid if some do not believe? Is this an all or nothing? I thought we were all your people, God. And this was, a, this was something that they didn't understand. Is that, Yeah, God pulled the Jews out of, out of the other nations and he separated them to give them God's word to be a light to all the other nations that through them they might see the Christ, the Messiah, the hope of salvation, the gospel, and that they'd be a light to all the world to draw everyone to God. Instead, they became the opposite. And they said, well, if not everyone, and, but they thought all the Jews through all out history were God's choosing people and they'll all be saved. So they're saying, if God is, so is God really unfaithful? Is that, because they're not going to receive the promises to the nation of Israel. God, you promised that we would be your people. So then is God unfaithful? God made promises to Jews and and he said that he would be their God and that they would be his people. But Paul just has shown in chapter 2 that they're not accepted by God simply because of their Jewishness. So does this make God unfaithful to his promise? 
You know, they'd forgotten in Genesis 13 and Genesis 15 that when God made the covenant, the commitment to save and to be a savior to people, that he took the blood of the ox and he spilt it and he made Abraham fall asleep. And he put Abraham aside and then he walked through and he consummated the covenant. That means that Abraham is not responsible to fulfill the covenant. Only God is. And it was foreshadowing that God fulfilled the covenant through his work. So just because somebody doesn't believe in God and that they aren't responsible in in responding to God... God is still going to be faithful. That's, God is perfectly faithful to himself. God is faithful and true and despite our sin. If God were perfectly faithful to himself, he would, think about this, if God was faithful to himself, he would condemn all of us and not be merciful and save us. Notice how, did you see in verse 4 how Paul responded? Kind of made him angry, Right? May it never be. It's like, God forbid, is really kind of what he's saying. Is He's saying, let God's truthfulness make every man be a liar. Paul means here that in spite of what man does, God, God's work is true. God will honor every promise. Titus 1.2 says that God cannot lie. There's no, that's not who he is. And David, in fact, responds to this. Remember David who committed adultery with Bathsheba, that sexual sin, and then he lied about it, and then he covered it up, and then he killed a man, her husband. And it's amazing. God says David's a man after God's own heart. Don't you forget how sinful David was? But David understood this. In Psalm 51, if you read it, David's confession and plea for mercy after his sin with Bathsheba explains that God is faithful and true. He agrees that God is justified in every word that the prophet Nathan spoke to David about the consequences of sin. David has no excuse before a holy God. That's what verse 4 says when he says, as it is written, he's quoting David in Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words. You are right. Steve Lawson shared about this, about this idea of justified. Justified means to be proven right. Paul is saying that God's authoritative word will prevail in judgment on the last day. Man will not be judged by what man says. He said the final judgment will be according to the standard in the measurement of God's word. God is faithful even when we sin. God is still faithful. Think about this. Think about God's promises and God's love for you. That God is not mocked, by the way. What we sow is what we reap. God will judge our sins. This proves he is right. However, after we've sinned, and he's the right and perfect judge, and he judges us correctly, God also has provided a way to be forgiven. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, 
confess to see, it, to see sin the way God sees sin, it's filthy. It's wretched. Do you notice in, in verse 9, he says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sin, all unrighteousness, to purify us. Yeah, God is just. He is right. The third thing is, why bother with living right? It's kind of continue on this idea of, of just why, if God is, God is unfaithful, we, why do we even have to be right? Why bother living right? Paul writes, if our, if our righteousness, meaning the sin, our unrighteousness, meaning the sin and the unbelief of the Jewish people, demonstrates the righteousness of God, meaning enhances the glory of God. Think about that. They said, well, our unrighteousness, our sinful life, really shows how righteous God is. Then why bother living right? Because it's going to enhance God's glory. Isn't that a crazy thought? If God's, righteousness is de- de- if God's righteousness is demonstrated in man's unrighteousness, how can God be righteous to pour out judgment? How can man be held responsible? Doesn't this sound familiar? How can I be responsible? Isn't God loving and forgiving? God has no right to judge me. Some might say our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it helps people to see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is a sick argument. That's what that, isn't that what Jeremiah said? Our heart is desperately wicked and sick to have thoughts like this? But at the same time, it, it, it is a sick argument because it accuses God of using sin to his own advantage. That's what the Jews were, that's the, the, the mindset here. Here's the answer. Is the question, is, is it right for God to judge our sin? And the answer is, God's judgment against our sin demonstrates his righteousness. See, people get it wrong. They, 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 they answer it wrong. It's, it's not our sin that, that really demonstrates the righteousness of God. It's his judgment against sin that demonstrates he is right. There is a price on sin, and that price is death, Romans 6.23. However, there's a gift. There's joy in the Lord. There's a blessing. My friend, just because you haven't been caught or judged yet, don't get too confident or cocky. God knows what's in your life. He knows what's in your heart. He knows even the objections to following some of God's plans for your life as you read through Scripture. He knows the condition of your heart. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will reap. But he says, don't give up in doing good because in the end you'll reap the harvest. God will produce his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you confess, if you turn and say the real condition of your life and you repent and you believed in Christ, not in who you are and what you can do or the system that you follow, 
Go to the last one. Isn't my desires okay since God's love for me brings me brings him glory? This is what Paul is saying in verse 7. He says, But if through my lie the truth of God abounds to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. If my sin establishes God's righteousness, then is evil good? Hey, I, I don't have to follow any law. I don't have to do, worry about anything. I can just do whatever I want. I'm no longer under the law. There's nothing right. I can just do whatever I want, what's right in my own eyes, because God will forgive me. There's, there is actually a theological viewpoint that's been espoused for years. It's called antinomianism or against the law. Antinomianism is just a fancy way of saying against the law or against God's law. If my sin exalts God, then why does God judge me? And Paul goes on to answer this in detail in Romans 6 and Romans 7. You know, if grace may abound more as I, in my sin, then should I keep on sinning, he says. And he says, no, heaven forbid. If forgiveness glorifies the Lord, then why not sin a bunch? So God forgives me a bunch because he gives more glory then. There's actually some that believe this. Antinomianism holds the idea that we can do as we please, sin as we please. We are saved by grace. It says that morality and life and and, us, and our lifestyle doesn't matter since we are saved by faith. Nothing could be further from God's truth. Even though God is exalted by the forgiveness of sin, he is, never, he is never exalted by sin itself. In truth, sin in the lives of God's children can do irreparable harm in the lives of those that sin and those around them. Just ask Achan, right? When he stole something and God said, don't, don't take of the, the, the battlefield, don't take of the, of the treasures when you, when you defeat the enemy. And he did anyway, and he buried it, and he hid it, and it ended up costing his whole household. Sometimes our sin does irreparable damage to everyone around us. Sin cannot glorify God. When God rightly judges us, it shows that God is right. When we say that God is right and we repent and say, yep, God, you are right, I am not. And we turn to the cross. God gives us a, a huge gift of his righteousness, not ours. Our act of sinning and the act of God giving us his righteousness is not condone the sin. It does not even glorify the sin 
the act of him placing his righteousness in our life as a gift because of what he did on the cross and dying on the cross for our sins and paying for our sins and standing in between that act of righteousness, it glorifies God because it's his righteousness that's being glorified, not the sin. Willfully sinning always will end up under just condemnation. Here's some things to think about in the direct implication. Spiritual privileges do not give you the advantage with God. If you do not respond in faith and obedience, rather they increase your accountability to God. Some might say, you know, I've grown up in the church. It's the the thing that scares me the most about my kids. They've grown up hearing all these good things. They've heard all the stories. They've, they've re- we've read through the Bible. They've heard a lot of good theology. They can answer a lot of theology questions. But they have a responsibility from their heart to respond to God and say what sin is. They can't just know about it. They can't just say, well, yeah, I've, I've been privileged. I have a lot of good wisdom. I know how to live good. I know what's good. I know what's bad. It doesn't matter. What matters is what Christ has done. The Bible is a great treasure that God has entrusted to us. We can know everything we ever need to know about God right here. It is near to us. God is near to us through prayer and through his word. How how do we not take advantage, more advantage of this? In our study, in our Bible study on Wednesday night, we were talking about prayer and talking about in, in very wisely and rightly this morning, um, Rob brought our attention to that. How do we know that God is near and in our prayer and, and through what God has given us, his written word. But through prayer, we noticed that Martin Luther said, he goes, I have so much to do. I'm so busy. I have so much that I need to do today. I need to spend at least three hours in prayer. His point was, I'm not going to be able to do all the things that are required of me unless I spend time with God. I need to be in prayer with God. We need to study it. We need to seek to obey it as the only wise way to live. We don't need to treasure the Bible as something that's religious that just magically makes me good. It helps us to understand our true self and it helps us to understand God's true self, who he is. If you're fighting against God, you're fighting a losing battle. You cannot win. This is truly the impossible mission. You know, we always have movies that talk about the impossible mission, right? Or mission impossible. I'm dyslexic, so. (laughs) The impossible, (laughs) mission impossible, right? This is impossible. You are. If you're fighting against God and saying, you know, leveling these objections against God, it's not going to happen. You're going to lose. This is the biggest way. This is why a lot of people don't get saved. They're not willing to say, yeah, God, you're right. I'm wrong. This is the reality. This This is the hardest part for people. 
It's just to simply, I surrender, God. This is true. The work of the cross. we, We struggle with that idea of surrendering. That's why I do First John 1 9, if we if we confess, it's a conditional clause, right? If we come to him and say, Yeah, Lord, you're right. I am wrong. I see it now. He wipes, he purifies us. He cleanses us. I hit that stupid button again. <laughs> Here's a last thing to think about in this idea of how do we, what do we learn about all these, these objections? Be careful not to use your question and objections as an excuse for not responding to your sin and trusting in Christ. Maybe someone here watching or here with us this morning, you've had a lot of questions and objections. Maybe you struggle with the reality that you are that you're not a good person. That's the whole point why Paul has spent all this time unpacking about judgment. So that way we can see that none of us will escape judgment. None of us are good, none of us are right, none of us seek after God. But God sought us when he died on the cross for our sins. Just read Philippians chapter 2. Just read Isaiah, you know, all through the 40s and 50s and 60s. God had a plan to redeem, to buy back his people. Don't let the worldly philosophies, questions, thoughts, ideas keep you from returning to God. Maybe you've been struggling with something in your life. Maybe you know you are saved. You know that God saved you. But you're struggling. And you know that you're struggling. And you don't want to give something up. And it's hurting your relationship with God. Turn back to Him. Don't let your questions and objections or your excuses. I like the excuses part. I I had to put that in there. Don't let your excuses, oh, it's not that bad. Right? Paul even said, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are beneficial. Right? It's very simple. Just because something is good doesn't mean that it's right in God's eyes. Satan can use good things to keep us from God. I, you know, I love barbecue. <laughs> I love football. Well, actually, I can't say I love football. I like football. I've learned to distinguish the difference, right? I'm glad it's over. There's no more distractions. <laughs> now I can just, I got to stop thinking about barbecue. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and, but you're like, no, no, no. Never stop thinking about barbecue. <laughs> just not on, no, that's the thing is we can let good things distract us from a right God. Right? Oh, Lord. We are sinful people. 
We are just your sheep. There's a reason you called us sheep. We are the sheep of your pasture. And Lord, I pray that we would realize that we are just dumb, stubborn, repulsive sheep that need to be sheared. We need the weight lifted. Lord, I pray that if someone here knows that and feels that, that they've been struggling with this great weight, that they would turn to Christ, that they would turn to you and say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I know I'm not right. I've had a lot of objections. I've been trying to prove that I'm right. But this morning I've, I've realized I'm not right. And Lord, that you would save them. Would you, I pray that you would clothe them with your righteousness, with that wonderful gift that Christ purchased for us when he died on the cross for our sins. And Lord, that we would continually run to you and confess our sin as you reveal it to us, as we see it, and that we would, that we would be, that everyone would see our good works that you produce through us and that they might glorify you and that we would see many come to you that there would be a revival in our community because we care about your righteousness, not ours. We're not good. But Lord, you are great. And Lord, so may we use your word in a way that would shine a light to all the people around us, that they would see your good works, that they would see the work on the cross and repent and believe that you are the Christ the Messiah who takes away the sins of the world. May that be, may we be light bearers. May we not use the light to just feel good about ourselves, but may we use the light to show people the way, the good news. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.